Morning, church. Uh, talking of critical uh, times in our uh, nation, um, Liverpool Football Club are currently 14 points ahead of the table. So <laughs> we're looking like we're going to win the league. Um, prayer is valued at this time. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, no, it's, um, it's such a privilege uh, to be here with you. I mean that. One of the joys uh, of life is fellowship with brothers and sisters. So it is a very deep privilege to be here. Um, and Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. And for me, I've been looking forward to Christmas since about September. I'll put the tree up in September. I will. Maria won't. <laughs> she keeps me slightly grounded with Christmas. But actually, this, this season of Advent is um, something which is historically very, very important for the life of the believer. Okay? The fact is, is that we are in a time where historically we look back to and we focus on what we call the incarnation. And God became flesh and dwelt among us. When we looked into a manger and there actually lying there was a saviour. And me and Maria have really, really enjoyed this time, setting some time apart multiple times during the day and focusing on Advent. So just as a brother to my fellow sisters and brothers in the room, like if, you, if you're not making Advent something uh, in your life, can I encourage you to do so? Because it's been a part of the church for 2,000 years or so. It's very, very important. And it's not only a time where we look back. And this is why it's so key, because Advent is a time where you look forward we look back to the coming of the king, and then now we look for the return of the king. Yeah? So actually, the theologically speaking, life is Advent. Okay? Your life is Advent. It is living in light of Christ who came, and it is living in light of him coming once again. Now, I bring Advent up, firstly, because I just wanted to encourage you to, to be Advent-minded. Yeah, you move it off, yes. Is that better? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah great. Um, I bring it up, yeah, partly just to encourage you to be Advent-minded. But secondly, because the wonder of the incarnation, okay... The wonder of Christ coming actually interprets today's passage for us wonderfully. And as I keep that thought with us, um, it reminds us that actually when we approach Scripture, okay, when we approach this, we approach it first and foremostly through the lens of Christ. Okay? The historical details are important. The contextual details are important. The words used in the passage are important. But the most important glasses, if you will, that we put on when we come to Scripture is Christ. 
And so in our very coming to Scripture, we declare with the Apostle Paul that Christ is all and is in all. That's what it's about today. Okay? So as we come to Acts, what we're really going to see is we're going to see the incarnation afresh again. Now I'm going to change how I'm talking about the incarnation slightly. Okay? So this is very, very important. I'm going to use it not just talking about God becoming flesh. Okay? I'm, I'm not just talking about that. I'm going to use it in a more ancient way. Which is actually, when I say the word incarnation, what I'm talking about is the coming of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the coming of Christ. Okay, So when I say incarnation, it's talking about what some theologians have called the Christ event. Okay, Have that in mind as we go. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 14. Read from verse 21. We're going to end at 28. Okay, so just up to the end of the chapter. After preaching the good news in Derb and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. Reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Then they travelled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia. They preached the word in Perga, then went to Italia. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. Now, in one sense, our text today is very simple. It's really the closing of the chapter or the, the closing of the story so far. Okay? What we have, essentially, is Paul and Barnabas preaching, retracing their steps all the way back to Antioch, where they are encouraged once again with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And we also have a text which is not only just closing that, but it's setting up for the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15. Okay? And we get a hint of that. And the way Luke sets that up for us, uh, right at the end that we just read, God had opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles too. Okay? The Council at Jerusalem in chapter 15, when we get that, is all about the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews. Okay? So in one sense, our text is gonna, it's making us anticipate what is to come. But where is the incarnation in the text? 
Well, like many things in life, the larger details tend to grab our attention, don't they? And yet, it's often the smaller details, the smaller moments, which actually have a lot of significance. Okay, so what I want to focus on this morning, what I feel like God has really burdened me with for us all this morning, is to focus on some of the smaller details of the text. Let me reread to you just the first two verses, because they're going to be our focus today. And I'm aware that I'm missing a lot in the chapter, but that just gives you more to go home and explore and dig into yourselves, okay? But we're going to focus on these three significant but small little details. First one. Let me read 21 and 22 again. After preaching the good news in Derb and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. First significant detail. Paul and Barnabas choose to retrace their steps. Now, at first, you might be thinking, why is that so significant? In Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas walk in, and at first, there is great fruit. Okay, people are encouraged, and they preach, and they like what they're hearing so much that they encourage them to come back the next week and preach again. And yet, when they come back and preach again, jealousy arises in some of the hearers. And they rouse a mob and they chase them out of Pisidian Antioch. They go to Iconium. What happens in Iconium? Exactly the same thing. Apart from this time, Paul and Barnabas get stoned. They go to Lystra. The mobs from the previous two towns have followed them. And they're preaching and they're living the gospel out in their midst And they stone Paul to the point where they believe he's dead, as we heard about a couple of weeks ago. And they leave him there. But Paul continues and goes and preaches anyway. But the fact that they choose to retrace their steps to places where they have suffered hardship, where they have been stoned, is significant. That's a significant choice that's going on. What makes them go back? Why do they go back? Secondly, they go back to strengthen the believers. Did you notice that? As they retrace their steps into towns and into cities which have persecuted them, where they've suffered hardship, they do it in part to encourage and strengthen those who had received their message with joy and who were now following the risen Jesus. They chose to suffer for the sake of other people. They chose to go and encourage and meet with people who would now probably be targets for the same sort of hardship and suffering. Yet they they chose it. That's a significant detail. The third 
significant detail. What's the message that is summed up for us? Luke summarizes the message of Paul and Barnabas for us very, very succinctly. They, remind, he, uh, they reminded the believers that they must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What? That they must suffer in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's the encouraging message and the strengthening message that they give this group of believers. And the word translated there, which is translated must, really means, it comes from the verb to to bind. In other words, believers are bound to suffer in order to enter the kingdom of God. It's not the chirpiest message, is it? But it's also something that we don't hear very often about. And I imagine as, we, as we're hearing this, well, how? In what sense must believers suffer in order to enter the kingdom of God? I think here we touch on a teaching in the New Testament, which I think is vital to our faith. Okay? It, is, it is vital and if we get it and we live it, it's going to fill us with life. Okay, it's going to fill us with life. And if we reject it, which I'm going to say is going to be our natural impulse, okay? Our natural impulse is going to say, this is a load of baloney. But if we do that, it will quench a fire in you. And you will go from hot, and you will go very quickly to lukewarm. And then you will go very quickly to cold. The stakes are high. Let me put this and summarize this bluntly, and then we're going to meditate on it some more. Okay? For Christians, brothers and sisters, if you follow this morning the risen king, it is not the case of if we will suffer. It is the case that we will suffer. Or, to put it in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Weighty words. He bids him come and die. So in what sense then is this true? What I want to do, before I um, untangle this, I want to tangle it some more, if you will. Okay? Bear with me. But this is important, because what I want to get us to see is actually that this isn't just a teaching in a small part of Scripture. Okay? That this is actually scattered through the New Testament like a thread. Okay? Matthew 5, 11 to 12. This is Jesus talking to his disciples on the mountainside. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. There's a blessing involved. That's not just nice language. There's a blessing involved when we're persecuted, when we go through hardship. 
for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in just the same way. Luke 9, 23. This is Jesus speaking again. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross. Take up a symbol of suffering, of contempt, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. James 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. For we know that when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. 1 Peter 1. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. But these trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed. Romans 5. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and strength of character confident hope of salvation therefore dear brothers and sisters this is Paul speaking in Romans you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do for if you live by its dictates you are going to die But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death, we have to suffer inwardly here. We have to put something to death. You will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Suffering then is always going to happen for us as Christians. Okay? If hardship from those who do not believe, or even from the devil himself, if that's not how we're going to suffer, what is guaranteed is that conquering the inflated self that has its source in pride and in sin, that will involve hardship and suffering. There's an inward suffering or an outward suffering. Okay? Paul illustrates this really well. For those of you who know Romans 7, where he has this and illustrates this great battle that goes on inside of a person between knowing what is good and true and yet choosing to do the opposite. That battle, that struggle, is a hardship. It's a suffering. And it is the Christian life. In our passage, suffering is treated by Paul and Barnabas as a price worth paying to preach the gospel. And it's worth suffering and hardship if other believers are encouraged to live 
for the risen Jesus. And it's also seen as the route for attaining the kingdom of God. And as we've just seen, the rest of the New Testament says that suffering can actually be something which crafts the believer and therefore should lead to joy. It's a preparatory work by God for us that tests faith or is like a furnace that takes away all the rubbish and leaves you with something pure. Now I imagine that you're going to be hard-pressed to find a subject which offends most or more hearers than this way of talking about suffering. Okay? And that is, for us, important because we live in the same context as those people who are going to find it hard. Which means probably, because we've grown up in our Western context, we probably feel some of the knee-jerk reaction to this way of looking at suffering. Okay? And therefore, this really doesn't sound like the good life, does it? It doesn't sound like the good life. To follow the risen Jesus means to suffer, and there's no way out of it. But there are two, or there are more, but I just want us to think about, there are two specific poisons, in the way that I've put them, which have for hundreds of years been put into the air of Europe and North America particularly, and which are in the air that we breathe now. And actually when we inhale these, they're part of the reasons why we don't come at suffering in the same way. The first one, the teaching which says that there is no single truth which makes sense of all of life. You're going to have heard that in numerous ways, okay? The claim that every moral or religious truth claim is nothing but just what I think. It has no corresponding to reality. And that everyone's claim for truth is up for grabs. They're all just true. That's the first one. The gospel becomes about private sentiment in this. It's just another way of seeing. And this goes against the very grain of what the gospel is declaring. The gospel instead is saying that it is real truth which real humans are to conform to and live towards and for. In other words, the gospel is about reality, the daily life that we live. It's not just another stab in the dark, it's something that we don't know. It's not just subjective opinion. It's not just one truth when there are lots of other truths, okay? And that, I think, is part of the reason, by the way, that culture really finds evangelism quite scary. They find it scary. Why? Because it is actually utter arrogance for us as Christians to go on and to say that our truth is better. That actually following Christ is life and other roots mean death. 
And because there's a, this poison in the air that every truth claim is, is just as valid, it comes across as pure arrogance. Another way that this has uh, infiltrated is if you hear the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's a very tricky one because that really appeals to us. It's absolutely dead wrong. Absolutely dead wrong. If God exists, beauty is objective. He defines beauty. It's nothing to do with me defining beauty or anyone else. He defines beauty itself. I also think that this is um, why we find it so terrifying to do evangelism. Because we're worried about telling someone they're wrong. And that actually there are certain things that need to change. And it's a good question to reflect. Why is it that we struggle sometimes to share the good news? Because if we are thinking that it's just another story amongst others, then, then of course suffering for it is actually just it's fairly idiotic, really. But if we're saying that the gospel is about reality and therefore it's good news not only for me but also for everybody else as a result, well, that has massive implications for how we share the gospel. The second poison is an ancient one. And John, in 1 John, says it very uh, succinctly. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. The world has its prizes. And the world particularly gives the resources and the encouragement and the convincing arguments that humans can be satisfied with stuff, with comfort. If I can just have this thing, then life will be good. It's so subtle. So subtle and so convincing. The the world's wisdom cries out for us to have and to have and to have in abundance. And this is the hook, by the way, if you've read 2 Timothy, that catches Demas. Demas is a disciple in Christ very early who goes around with Paul. And at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, what you see is that Paul says, Demas has left me, for he fell in love with the world. He's fallen in love with that which is not Christ. He's found his ultimate happiness, his ultimate goodness, in something which is not capable of bearing that kind of weight. I remember hearing uh, of a story about two, two or a bit months ago. And I think this has been passed around in different contexts, so you might be familiar with it. Uh, but there was, uh, in this story, it was an Iranian couple, a pastor and his wife, who had gone over to the States for some mission training and for some encouragement. And they were staying there for quite some time. And in Iran, if you proclaim Christ open publicly, that's going to cost you either a long time in prison or or life, like that's your life done. And they came, the, this couple came over to the States, and the wife eventually asked for them to go back. He's like, well, it's completely free to preach the gospel in, in America. Why, why, would I, 
why, why do we need to go back? But his wife pleaded with him to go back. Why? Because the level of comfort that they found within Christian churches had produced a dullness to people. It had blunted what should be a very sharp blade. It had poured water on a flame which should have been very large. And she said, we need to go back. She realised that actually when you realise that faith, that following the risen Jesus can cost you everything, that's either going to throw you headlong into love with Jesus and to caring only about him, or it's going to make you realise that actually in the end you weren't following Jesus, you were following a nice idea, you were following comfort, you were following something that you've been sold and that you bought into, but wasn't the suffering Messiah. And the combination of these poisons has, can be seen in, in other ways. For example, now, uh, it's really commonplace for these things to be confused. Want and need. Ownership and stewardship. Tithing and generosity. Fact and subjectivity. Humility and timidity, truth-telling and arrogance. All of these things, because of these poisons, get confused. They all blur. But both these poisons, the rejection of religious truth being fact and material things bringing wholeness, both these poisons are, I think, largely responsible for why we feel so repulsed about suffering. Because the comfort appeals. Because we don't want it. And at heart, are we really convinced that Jesus is good news in history for other people? Or is it only just a subjective story that is nice to tell ourselves? Now, the answer to understanding how Paul and Barnabas in our passage endure and teach suffering, and the answer to these, and to get rid of these poisons is where we started. It's the incarnation. It's the incarnation. Beloved, the, uh, the answer is Jesus, who in Luke uh, 1, in some translations, is described as the morning star who comes from heaven. He is the key to understanding how we can come on board with this view of suffering. Okay? And I want to look at three ways. Three ways this happens. The claim of Paul and Barnabas as they travel through the cities and the towns preaching in Acts. They were not preaching a message that life would get easy. Okay? And it wasn't that they thought that the message of Jesus was just something that they found exhilarating. The heartbeat of their message, what undergirds it, what underlined it, was the fact that the gospel was and is truth. Not just their truth, it is truth. A very real eternal son in history became joined with real humanity. 
lived a very real, perfect life. And in a very real way, was very really crucified and really died and really rose from the dead and all authority really did go to him and one day he really will come back. The gospel is about fact. It is about fact. And if it is not, then it should be thrown away. It should be thrown out. It is about truth. The claim was not that it's a nice story. The claim is that Jesus came, was crucified, was resurrected in historical reality, in history. And that means the death of death is true. It means we sing, death, where is your sting? That means that's true. Not just true up here. Not just true for me. But it's true. It means that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he was right. That death doesn't hold us any more. Brothers and sisters, are we living as if the resurrection is true? Are we living as if we can stare death in the face and just say, where's your sting? Are we living as if the gospel is history and is real? Or are we living that it is just something nice to tell ourselves? Paul and Barnabas proclaim Jesus at risk of stoning and persecution because they know that Jesus was real. Therefore, hardship became light to them. It became light to carry. Death dying, sins being paid for, forgiveness offered to the world. These as facts are what enabled Paul and Barnabas to keep going through adversity. So the incarnation, where it happened in real space-time history, is one way in which then we begin to make sense of suffering. Okay? Secondly, what the incarnation established transforms suffering. Paul and Barnabas, considering suffering the way that they do, and what we saw in the rest of the New Testament, it all hinges on something. It all hinges on something. The incarnation was needed because of a very real problem that humanity has. If the gospel is about not what is true up here, but is actually true of the world, it means that actually we live in a moral universe and that has consequences. It means what we do or what we don't do really matter. Okay? It's not just meaningless action at the end of the day. It means actually that what we do and what we say and what we don't do and what we don't say matters. It also means that the the biblical uh, framework for understanding what's wrong with humanity 
is true as well. It means that humanity really was in a predicament. It means that humanity really did say yes to the self and no to God. It means that actually then there was a very real union that we once had with God that in a very real way was fractured and that we all need re-establishing. And the goal of the incarnation was the death of death. It was the devil defeated and so on. But it was also so that broken, fractured people have wholeness and union with the one that we are made to have union with. The incarnation established union with Christ and in Christ. And it is this union which, for Paul, makes suffering seem so light and so worth bearing with. So listen to Paul here describing what he thinks of Christ. I once thought these things were valuable, and he's talking about all the things that he used to boast in. But I now consider them worthless because what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The infinite value of knowing Christ as Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want, listen to it, I want to suffer with him. Sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul understands and has taken a complete Jesus' word when Jesus says, If you want life, you must die. Paul carries suffering so lightly, not because it doesn't hurt. It's not because it doesn't hurt. He chooses to live for Christ, not because he relishes every beating that he gets, not because he enjoys being stoned. Scripture nowhere says that we should go hunting for these things that will happen to us, okay? Don't get the wrong idea. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. But what gets Paul through suffering And what makes it so light is union with the one he considers everything. In Hebrews, it says this of Jesus. It says, first of all, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Paul and Barnabas follow in the steps of their saviour. 
Paul has it in his mind so certainly, the joy that is set before him. He knows so well the deep union he has with a living saviour through the spirit. But what is suffering compared to knowing Christ? And this strikes actually something that is very human. Okay, think about this for a moment. Because if you notice, we gladly suffer for that which we love, usually, don't we? We even start to think of suffering. That it's actually worth it if I either protect somebody or something I love, or I gain something or somebody I love. To love is to suffer. To love is to suffer. The incarnation declares, brothers and sisters, it declares that love himself offers union with each one of us here today. Offers union. Deep union. Union that we were made for. That he who was raised again to new life Cancelling death and overcoming evil. The only perfect ones who have lived. And the one for whom we are made. He knocks at the door. He knocks at the door. You're going to let him in. Whether for the first time. Or for the millionth. You're going to let him in today. Because Jesus says, I stand, I knock at the door, and he or she who opens, I will come in and I will eat with them. I'll have communion with them. In Revelation 3, he says, I love you, let me in. I love you. Third, And now we're getting a little bit deep into incarnational theology, okay? But bear with me. Third. uh, Who the incarnation was for transforms suffering. Now, pay attention. Paul and Barnabas, the text says, encourages the new believers by reminding them that suffering is actually central to the gospel. How do you gain access to the kingdom of God? Paul and Barnabas have said, suffer. Okay. In what sense is that true? How is that true? The eternal son, scripture says, chose to put on flesh in order to save the world. Okay. To reconcile all things to himself. He knew he had to suffer. So the incarnation is about suffering. Jesus is well aware in the Gospels that he is going to the cross. That's in his mind. And John particularly paints this picture of Jesus very, very in control. He knows when he's going. His life, he gives it up. It's his to give up. And he does it willingly. His incarnation was for the sake of those who needed it most. Us. Okay? He suffered for us. 
Paul says this, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. What's going on here? Now, what Paul does not mean in this verse is that the death of Jesus didn't achieve what it intended to. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. But Paul is saying that as a believer, and that as he gives himself entirely for the risen Jesus, he suffers. And as he suffers, he walks the same incarnational road as Jesus did. In other words, when he suffers, he participates in Christ. In his suffering. And what he does as he suffers is he images the incarnation again to the world. He retells the incarnation by his suffering. Which is why he doesn't mind suffering. Because when we suffer, brothers and sisters, we in the most extraordinarily deep way retell the fact that Jesus suffered so that they may know him. We bear what is thrown at us. We bear the suffering inside and the battle inside. Why? For the life of the world. Them choosing to re-enter the same contexts to encourage uh, encourage their brothers and sisters in Acts. What was happening? They were showing them in the most vivid and loving way that participation in Jesus, because he is the suffering servant for the life of the world, means suffering ourselves for the life of the world. The incarnation of Christ compels believers to share in that suffering so that people may see resurrection life in us. That's the reason why Paul, once he was stoned, got up again and went preaching. He stands there with the scars and says, why am I doing this? As our culture around us craves comfort and safety, as the Western world continues to teach that there is no single truth, beloved, we are called to give our lives for their lives. That's the deep meaning of the incarnation. It draws us in to the suffering so that we then show that loving suffering to others. We are to walk amid suffering for one another and for those who do not know Christ. This comes back to this idea that actually not only is this for outside, but actually this is for us as well. Brothers and sisters, when we bear with one another, when we forgive and take that off somebody, when we choose to go out of our way for somebody else, we suffer so that they may have life. We are acting once again incarnationally orientated. Okay? We're, we're retelling the gospel once again and reenacting the gospel once again. If we're talking with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and the opportunity allows us, then scripture says that wisely and lovingly we tell them the hope that we have within us. 
And if we receive, in turn, hardship, if we receive, in turn, slander, if we receive, in turn, suffering, then we forgive. We bear it. We suffer in order that they may find life. We proclaim the Lord's death in our actions. And we proclaim the resurrection as we do so at the same time. We proclaim the Christ in us. And he is all and is in all. My prayer for us, brothers and sisters, is that one day we will be able to say these words with Paul. And I'll end with this. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we say, come into our hearts afresh today, again. Lord, we pray, may we open the door when we hear Jesus knocking in our hearts. I pray that today we would be known for a wanting and yearning, a loving union with you who sought us and loved us. With you who come into the deepest places and offer such rich and deep union. Such a union which can make suffering seem nothing. Lord, I pray for us all that we would all know the worth of Christ. That he would be our all. And that you would give us strength to live as he lived. And that your resurrection power and life would be seen in us, even if it means suffering. Amen.